Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome to you all. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. In case you've been in a slumber for the last couple of years and you weren't exactly sure which year Anno Domini it is. It is 2023, and we'll be talking a little bit on this show about the last three years and what it's done to the state of politics. I'm talking specifically about the pandemic era and its effect on political polarization which has been on an increase in Canada by some metrics for quite some time. And I wanted to delve into this because a new report that is coming out tomorrow does exactly that. And it's a report written by someone you might not expect to be here on The Andrew Lawton Show. That is freelance journalist Justin Ling, who I have had uh, many spirited debates and disagreements with. But I've also had several constructive conversations with him, including about this very topic. So I wanted to have him on the show a little bit later on to talk about political polarization in his report. But I have to kick things off here by talking about this uh, really, really bizarre story in which you have to kind of just decide who you're going to believe, Christian Freeland or everyone other than Christian Freeland. Now, I bet I believe that's made it too easy for you to decide. So let me roll things back here. Christian Freeland was making what was actually in a roundabout way a more sympathetic point about how her lifestyle, her low-carbon lifestyle living in downtown Toronto, might not be the kind of thing that someone living in PEI or rural Alberta is able to do. And she was trying to basically, it's like when she said we can just cancel the Disney Plus subscription to beat inflation. She's giving a little prescription from her own life. It's what politicians do. They try to be relatable. But it didn't quite land. This is what Christia Freeland said. I right now am an MP for downtown Toronto. Um, A fact that still shocks my dad is I don't actually own a car because I live in downtown Toronto. I'm like, I don't know, 300 meters from the nearest subway. Um, I walk, I take the subway, I make my kids walk and ride their bikes and take the subway. It's actually healthier for our family. I can live that way. She goes on after that to say what I I said in the lead into it, to talk about how she can't necessarily do that if she's living in rural Alberta or PEI. So again, I want to give her credit for trying to be relatable and also trying to understand that in a country as geographically diverse as Canada, what works for someone in downtown Toronto is not what works for someone elsewhere in the country. So that part maybe we don't think is too much of a slam dunk on it being an absurd thing to say. But let's just go back to her lifestyle. Oh yes, she just takes her little uh, bike around, she walks around, she goes to the subway, she's just like a normal working professional, a normal working mom. She can do everything without a car. Well, she conveniently left out the fact where as the minister of the crown, she has a car and driver. Uh, So maybe she doesn't have the car. It's the chauffeur's car. It's the government of Canada's car. Let's not get technical on the details. But to make it seem like she does not use an automobile for transport was a little bit odd. Now, Christia Freeland is also someone who, if you look at her records, it doesn't seem like even has a home in Ottawa like a lot of ministers does. Uh, For example, I've looked at some of her travel logs that she has filed as far as expense claims go, and she's actually doing the commute between Toronto and Ottawa multiple times a week. You can take a look there. 
This is, I believe, from September of last year. I just sort of picked a random month, and she's gone several times within a week back and forth. Uh, there's another one from, I think it was October or November we'll put up. Uh, that you can see now where she's basically done the same thing uh, to and from uh, constituency to Ottawa. So she's going back and forth. And, you know, again, I, I'm not one to besmirch air travel. I love traveling by air. I do it all the time. But I'm not the one sitting there telling everyone else they have to live this low, no-carbon lifestyle. And, in fact, when I uh, saw Christian Freeland last, it, actually, no, when I saw her last, it was at Ottawa Airport. And I realized that I, she recognized me because the second she saw me, she put her sunglasses on indoors and looked away. Uh, so that was the last time. But the time before that, I was on a flight uh, with her back from Davos. I was there as a journalist. She was there as a, a speaker and invited guest. And uh, she was way up in the first class cab. And I was uh, back, uh, you know, just a, a couple of rows away from the bathroom there. And uh, again, didn't run into her on that flight. We were just like, you know, two separate sections of the plane. Uh, but again, first-class air travel has a bit of a carbon footprint. Now, I, I'm not one of these people that actually takes aim at MPs who make decisions that let them spend more time with their family. So I actually have zero issue with Christopher Freeland going back and forth between Toronto and Ottawa. It's a, what, an hour-long flight. She lives downtown. She can fly to, as you see in the logs there, Billy Bishop Airport, get to Ottawa, and get back to see her kids and husband. I think that's absolutely fine. But I do not like when that is accompanied by the lectures about how everyone else needs to do all this stuff for the climate. That's the part that always gets me a little bit riled up here. It's not these people deciding to travel. It's them doing it while telling us that our lifestyles are not so important to justify it. And this whole thing of, oh, I just take the subway and walk and bike around. Well, I have a driver and well, I've, I mean, she actually flies to the office. That's the thing. Like most of us who drive to the office do not fly to the office, which has a much greater carbon footprint than driving to the office, even if you're stuck in that lovely Toronto traffic for a couple of hours. I mean, I yesterday uh, decided I would try to be the fun uncle, and I brought my nephews, courtesy of, uh, <laughs> courtesy of this uh, weird weird dose of not quite thinking through my actions clearly to Canada's Wonderland. And it's a great park uh, just north of Toronto. And then on the drive to Toronto, I was like, why on earth? This is like, I, I never voluntarily drive to Toronto, but I'm doing it. So even that had a lower carbon footprint than had I flown to Ottawa for the day and come back the next day. Now, what's interesting about this thing, though, is that the weaponization of the word misinformation factors into things. So uh, Christian Freeland, who I don't normally see scrapping with people on Twitter, decided she would start trying to play whack-a-mole with all of these people that were criticizing her online. Uh, one of them, for example is uh, Christian Freeland accusing Melissa Lantzman, the conservative MP, of, quote, peddling blatant misinformation. This is, of course, when uh, Melissa Lantzman points out the chauffeur connection. She says, who among us hasn't forgotten that they have a taxpayer-funded car and driver when lecturing Canadians about walking, riding your bike, and taking the subway as liberals punish everyone by tripling their carbon tax? Hypocrites. Uh, Christian Freeland did the whole, I'm disappointed in you. I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. And then she says, I ride my bike to meetings in Toronto because I live in the community I represent and I take taxis to the airport. Public transit isn't an option for many Canadians. Driving is both necessary and often expensive. 
And then if this goes on because uh, Melissa Lanceman actually shared a piece that was published by Blacklock's reporter, uh, which was, again, the whole thing that Christopher Freeland is saying is misinformation. And uh, interestingly enough, this back and forth, I won't read like the whole thing because I feel summarizing a Twitter fight is less important than you just reading the whole thing to yourself. Uh, but it was actually quite shocking that the misinformation was completely and utterly factual. And you can even look up government spending records where you see uh, Christian Freeland with a chauffeur, but it is now misinformation to point this out, uh, that it is not a car-free lifestyle. Again, however much she may want to pretend it is. But all of this, I must admit, is kind of fun and interesting to point out, but it is also part of the performative nature of politics. And, and no side is immune from this. I mean, the $16 glass of orange juice is the orange juice seen around the world. Uh, we will forever remember until the end of our days the price of a glass of orange juice at the Savoy Hotel in London because that was not a particularly consequential piece of government spending but represented something that people could resonate with same as climate hypocrisy from uh, various uh, people including many in the liberal government and so on and part of this has fueled, according to a new report, the idea of polarization. Now, I, I'm going to, before we get into this here, define with the author of this report what polarization is, because it is one of those things that can mean different things to different people. Freelance journalist Justin Ling set out in a new report called Far and Widening, The Rise of Polarization in Canada, which you can see there, and it comes out tomorrow to identify some of the root causes of this. And he actually does quite a, a formidable job with this. He talks about partisan sorting, which we'll get into in a moment. He talks about the online uh, ecosystem. He mentions True North, not entirely in a favorable way, so we'll talk about that as well. And he also talks, of course, about the pandemic, which has inflamed many of these polarizations and polar tensions in Canadian politics. Now, I should say, Justin Ling is a guy with whom I, I've had several disagreements, but I, I've always, always had had uh, whenever I've interacted with him, very civil and positive exchanges. And he was the only journalist outside of conservative media to actually interview me about my book on his podcast when it came out, which I was and remain very appreciative of. And I wanted to return the favor now that Justin has put out this report. Justin Ling joins me now. Uh, Justin, it's good to talk to you. And I will say congratulations on doing this. I know it's uh, quite a, a lengthy piece and I know it was something you worked on for uh, many months. So uh, thanks Thanks very much and well done. The thing, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm. There was a reason why I, I, I picked your show as one of the first interviews we were going to do about this thing. So I'm excited to get into it. Let's before we get into the meat of this, explain what your research question is and also what your definition of polarization is, because I, I know it's one of those things that even in academic literature on political polarization can have a, a number of meanings. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. 
Yeah, and that's exactly it. I mean, going into this report, the idea was not to come up with any big solutions. It was not um, to sort of assign blame necessarily. It really was supposed to be a diagnostic, right? Like an audit of the state of polarization in Canada to understand the drivers, the variables and the factors that was contributing to our sense of polarization. Or, I mean, maybe we went into it kind of wondering, are we going to find out that polarization is really not as bad as we all kind of think it is? So um, from the outset, definitions were really hard. So much of the academic literature is about the US. And in the US, it's really easy to measure, right? Because you ask people, how do you feel about Donald Trump? How do you feel about January 6? How do you feel about the COVID vaccines? How do you feel about abortion access? Whatever, right? All of those policy issues, you can actually watch uh, not just the divide between the two polls, but uh, the movement that uh, occurs when, say, Donald Trump comes out uh, pro or against something, or Joe Biden comes out pro against something, you know, you actually see Republicans shift significantly when Donald Trump pronounces against a certain issue. So uh, on all of those fronts, it's really easy to measure south of the border. Here, we don't really have that, right? We have that liberal consensus, broadly speaking, on abortion access, on LGBTQ rights, so on and so forth. Even if um, there's a divide, the divide stays pretty static, right? Um, so we, we kind of work to look at a whole bunch of other metrics. There's a little bit of academic research. I won't go too far into it. Suffice it to say, um, we are seeing the demonization of political opponents, um, the appeals to identity over policy or issues. We're seeing um, starker d divides um, when it comes to the actual political sphere. We're seeing an inability to talk to each other on major issues. And we're seeing instances of mass uh, civil demonstration that gets sort of unruly. And that goes everywhere from the Freedom Convoy uh, right down the line to uh, the, the basically the, the violence that's occurred in Nova Scotia around the livelihood fishery for Mi'kmaq fishers. Um, so we're seeing all of the symptoms of polarization. And I'm feeling really comfortable saying uh, that it's here and it, it, it's quite bad. And by all the polling data we have, Canadians tend to agree. One of the interesting uh, bits of research that you shared that I, I find is a useful reflection of, of this problem was how people define their political opponents and how people think their yeah. the political outgroup is comprised. And, and the one that I think you the examples you gave from the research you cited was that, you know, conservatives tend to think there are a lot more gays in the liberal party and liberals think there are a lot more unvaccinated people in the conservative party and both are, are over inflations. But it actually shows that people do have, whether intentionally or not, kind of a, a caricaturish version of, of what the other political group is. Yeah, absolutely. And so this this research comes from Eric Merkley at the University of Toronto. He's actually used, uh, there's these surveys that get done. They're kind of like exit polls mm -hmm. after every major federal election. It's probably the best trove of data we have about how Canadians feel about the political scene. And he's used that data to actually chart the ways in which Canadians are growing increasingly disaffected and alienated towards our political parties. And he's basically said um, the data shows that we are trending towards the current state of, uh, of politics in the U.S., the, the the animosity Democrats feel for Republicans and and vice versa. So you're totally right. Um, partisans in this country increasingly see partisans of the other stripe as alien or foreign in some cases as working against the best interests of the country and seeing them as, as sort of a laboring under a moral defect in many ways. And, you know, we can, it's not hard to figure out why this is. You go back 20, 30 years and you had real um, competition 
women and diversity inside political parties, right? Inside the progressive conservative party, there was a pro-free trade side, there was an anti-free trade side. Um, ditto for the liberal party, you know, going mm -hmm. back to uh, the early 2000s, the liberals had a social conservative caucus, right? Um, the NDP had a, a pro-gun caucus inside of their party. And what that meant was that you could see within your own party elements of your opponents. Um, it was a lot easier for New Democrats to identify with conservatives because they also had a rural base, right? They also had rural voters, hunters and fishers and so on. So you could look across the aisle and say, okay, I might not agree with them on things. I might think their vision for the country is bad. Um, but at the very least, I understand where they're coming from because the guy sitting next to me or, you know, the guy who has the conservative sign down the street thinks a lot like they do or thinks a lot like I do. So, um, the decline of that, the, the 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 kind of collapsing in of our political parties has made this much worse. We no longer really have diversity in our parties. In fact, identifying with the party across the way is seen as a problem that needs to be kind of rooted out of your party. There's no longer really, I mean, maybe the conservative party might be the last kind of biggish tent, but even still, it's gotten a lot smaller. There's no ideological diversity in the liberal party. There's no real ideological diversity in the NDP. Uh, and even the conservatives, you know, identifying or agreeing with the liberals or NDP on anything is seen as a huge problem uh, and, and, and sort of a surrendering of, of the conservative ideals. And all of this makes any form of cooperation, collaboration, conversation really difficult. I agree with what you've just identified there, but but there's a contradictory problem I find that also exists, which is that you have people on the left and the right that increasingly don't even see distinctions between political parties anymore. And I, I think the pandemic was an example of that. I mean, you, you often hear in the U.S. the term brought up the uniparty, which is the idea that, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans are all part of one uniparty. And I, I know that we'll get into, you know, some of the conspiratorial stuff that, that I know you write a lot about. But but I, I'm wondering how that factors in, because in the COVID era, uh, as you've talked about in your report and as I've discussed on my show, there was actually very little tolerant for, tolerance for distinctions between political parties in the early stage. I mean, we even heard Aaron O'Toole talk all about the, the so-called Team Canada approach and Andrew Scheer at the time when he was the leader. And at that point, it was like opposition, political opposition was stigmatized. And you had MPs that even said that, that they were worried of criticizing the government because they didn't want it to feed into, you know, something that was adverse to public health measures. Yeah, I even include a little bit from a study that was done in Quebec in the early version or in the early part of the pandemic, where they observed exactly this phenomenon where a total lack of criticism and lack of, of competition really in the political sphere and the media, they extend this so far as to talk about the media as well, the lack of criticism of government policies actually fomented distrust amongst many people who were a little skeptical to begin with. And then when uh, sort of uh, partisanship returned, it made every Everything all the all that much more worse. Um, so you're you're right that sometimes a lack of competition or or a kind of a, a view that all the parties are the same also foments this problem. The reality is polarization is happening in different directions at the same time. Partisans um, are one part of the problem. Um, people who are kind of outside, maybe alienated from the, the the political game, are another part of the problem. And when I say problem, I don't mean they are the problem themselves. But all these things are contributing to the problem of polarization as are the kind of broad middle of the country who are who are frankly i think a little fed up um with with the entire process and who um 
to be honest with you, often kind of uh, f- buy into the idea of the wedges being used mm-hmm. um, in the political sphere. And, you know, I, in the report, I, I, I certainly chide Justin Trudeau for weaponizing some of those wedges as I chide uh, Pierre Polyev for, for weaponizing wedges in the opposite direction. Um, so you're, you're totally right um, that, that a perceived or real uh, lack of, of debate on some of these issues also contributes to this problem. And there is a significant class of people who have unplugged from politics in this country or who have opted for, frankly, conspiracy theories and misinformation to sort of explain this apparent consensus that's, that's happening in our political realm. Yeah, and you, you have a line that I'll, I'll quote here where you're talking about the two groups on, on COVID, the, the COVID narrative, if I can use that to, in a neutral way here, the, the trusting and the skeptical. You say each considered the other side to be selfish, misinformed, and misguided, but one side had the support of political leaders, the health establishment, and the media. The other, lacking a viable democratic outlet for their grievances, decided to head to the Capitol to make their voices heard. And of course, you're talking about the, the Freedom Convoy. You and I, I, I think, we're, we're seeing very different things uh, when we were looking at, at the convoy. And, and I think we should have a, a discussion about that at some point. But mm-hmm. I, I would be interested in, in hearing if you think that what happened from that point on only furthered that. Because I, I saw people that were consumers of convoy coverage in the media mm-hmm. that for the first time in their lives were saying, you know what, I'm swearing off the CBC, I'm swearing off the Globe and Mail because I, I don't trust them anymore. So if there had been up until you know January of 2022, a, a growing you know frustration or a, a growing level of disenfranchisement, when the convoy came, uh, it was really as though a, a flip switch for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And they said, I no longer trust anything that's happening in that establishment realm, be it from politics or media. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 100% the case. And I think it's really too bad um, for a variety of reasons. And it's not, and the mainstream media is not entirely without blame either, right? Um, So there was some bad coverage of the Freedom Convoy, and I won't pretend like all my coverage was 100% spot on either. I think I'll I'll just interrupt there and say that that a lot of the issues that my audience will have, we dealt with on Justin's (laughs) podcast. You can only read that at his Substack. So if you're like, why are you talking? Because we've already dealt, we've already done that part. So we can move on now, but carry on. I just wanted to put that on there for people to look up. (laughs) No, I appreciate it. Um, Because the thing is, you know, some people were right to be frustrated. But I will also say the sort of in-group, out-group thing, you know, the 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 constant need to be with your people, right? The people who, uh, let's say, agreed uh, with the convoy or the people who were just angry and furious and, 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 and you know, wanted to crack down on even harder. Um, the, the, the sort of divide that occurred between those sides made it really hard to see on the multiple fronts on which both sides actually probably agreed on a ton of things, right? Like I always tried to have this conversation with people, um, whether it was around the Freedom Convoy or whatever. I was against lockdowns, right? Like I was against, I live in Quebec. We had a curfew. Nothing made me angrier through the pandemic than being told by my government that I have to go inside at 8 p.m. every night. That made me crazy. Made all my friends crazy. It made a whole bunch of liberals and progressives and lefties and, and conservatives and libertarians. It made everyone in this province crazy. Um, and there was not enough debate about it in the media. And sometimes it felt like there was a the conspiracy of silence in the media to criticize the total lack of scientific evidence behind that policy. And I know when I went to Ottawa to cover the Freedom Convoy, a ton of Quebecers were there protesting the same thing. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the thing that ultimately, you know, set the dividing line between us was a feeling was feelings around the vaccine. You know, I'm aggressively pro-vaccine. I think the science supports them. Other people disagree. 
how do we figure out a way in which we can put aside some of those uh, big things we disagree on and focus more on the things that we can actually have a conversation on? The fact is, we can't have a real conversation about vaccines. There is just too much pollution in the space. There's too much misinformation out there. I know people might agree, disagree with me, and that's fine. But it's also over now. We're past that. Let's focus on the things where at least we can have a reasonable, rational conversation about these policies. And I think that's fundamentally the path forward here. It's going to require... Um, you know, it's going to require us to have a conversation about all of this, ideally in the form of a real public inquiry where we all get to come out and kind of air these grievances, uh, you know, have, um, you know, that 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 moment, that difficult conversation, then move on and figure out the bridges that we can find um, that allow us to have those conversations again, that also allow us um, to uh, hopefully, mm -hmm. um, you know, reopen those channels between people who don't trust the CBC anymore, but also between uh, the CBC and the mainstream press and maybe things like True North or other alternative conservative minded outlets because i think this pulling away over these frankly now relatively insignificant matters of disagreement is a real problem the convoy has been a year in the rearview mirror let's stop letting that dictate what news media we listen to um, or which politicians we trust or don't trust it's going to require a bit of a wiping of the slate clean and trying to kind of rebuild this all over again because if we keep uh, letting those divides grow i know this sounds a little bit you know rose glasses uh, optimistic but if we keep letting those divides grow things are going to get worse and we're going to continue having conversations that have nothing to do with each other and we're going to continue seeing the other side as foreign and alien and different and hostile and it's only through having those conversations that we're going to learn they're not that different they're they're a lot like us and they agree on many of the important things but but i think what you've said there contributes in a not an intentional way but contributes here to the problem because the people that felt most aggrieved by lockdowns and vaccine mandates and all of these things are not really willing to move on from it because for them, and you can understand it. I mean, you, you had people that lost their decades long careers out of this people that could not spend time with, with dying family members. And I, I know, you know, this, and I know you're critical of, of a lot of the, the measures uh, that, 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 as you just indicated there, but the thing is that there's a lot of resistance to this idea of just moving on from one particular group. So, so here's an example of a divide where, uh, you know, Justin Ling says, listen, we can all just agree this was an aberration. Let's move on. You've got someone else that for whatever reason says, no, I can't move on. I want accountability. I want justice. I want some form of, of, of recompense for this. How do you square that divide when, when people may be not able to agree on, on the severity of what happened? I mean, I, I think that's what a public inquiry gets you. Like, I know there's a there's a citizens inquiry going on. I think still going on right now. That I, I frankly don't think is is the best avenue for this. It's time the government, the provinces, whoever, get together and have a real conversation about the pandemic and whether or not the measures we put in place were effective or were not effective. I tend to. So think, you don't think we need yeah. to just sort of close the book and not look at it? No, no, no. Like I said, I think a public. Like, I, I think I put it right there in the report. One of the solutions about going forward has to be a public inquiry, right? Like it has to be a chance for everybody to get in the same room or on the same Zoom or whatever it is and, and kind of air those grievances so that we can move forward. That has to be the step okay. we do before we move forward. But that being said, you know, part of living in a democratic society is saying... Yeah, I was really unhappy the way this policy affected me. I was really unhappy the way in which um, this government uh, regulation impacted my, my life, my livelihood or whatever. But then going, you know, I have to compromise. I have to let stuff go at some time, at some points, right? Like, and I, and I appreciate there's still some raw emotions there. And I appreciate there's still some people who, um, you know, do want that recompense. But also, we got to move on. We got to figure a way to 
kind of get back to working together because the other part of all of this, you know, sometimes we talk about polarization as though it's just some sort of ephemeral problem that we just have to kind of clean out of the air, we'll all be fine. Part of the thing driving polarization is that we have a real problem of state capacity. There are things in this country that are falling apart. There are huge problems facing us. Um, and, and some of those problems uh, became very clear during the pandemic. Um, some of those problems, I think, fed into a lot of the mental health challenges that people experienced during the pandemic. It fed into a lot of the economic problems we faced during the pandemic. Uh, and I think if we're still bickering about things that happened two years ago, we're going to have a really hard time figuring out any sort of consensus or cooperation that lets us fix those very real problems that are still hurting our cities and our country and our livelihood and our families and so on. One of the, the most interesting quotes that you included in your report here came from a, a Trudeau government official who said they saw a moral imperative and that's the direct quote there, a moral imperative to push back against some of the anti-vaccine rhetoric. And, and you actually uh, take from that uh, a, a quote that I'll, I'll read here where you say that uh, in practice, uh, this meant turning vaccine status into a moral electoral wedge issue during a snap election in the midst of a pandemic. Now, I would say, and I'm curious if you agree or disagree, that the liberals weaponized the vaccine issue far more than the conservatives did, far more than the media did, because I really feel that, look, Trudeau looked and saw that 80% of the country was vaccinated. People who were unvaccinated were a statistical minority, and it seemed like a relatively low stakes game to start winning votes from the 80% at the expense of, of the, the 20. And I, I think the trucker mandate was a great example of that. It served no public health benefit. It, it really seemed to be adding insult to injury. Um, but I'm curious. So first off, I'm curious for your thoughts on, on that, but also that moral imperative, because I, I don't yeah. know if this was I don't know the tone in which this was said to you. Was this a liberal staffer kind of talking about, you know, we really wanted to stick the knife in or, or was it just a crusade that really existed outside of science in their view? So, okay. So, so let, let me say, I, I generally agree for, at least for that, you know, first year and a half or so, um, you know, coming up to the end of the 2021 election. Yes. The liberals were the ones who were weaponizing the pandemic for political ends. I, I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion. Um, you know, Aaron O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh and Yves-Francois Blanchet did their part of all standing together and trying to be those cooperative political figures to say, yes, please go get vaccinated. They're safe. Put political differences aside and go uh, get this, this, this vaccine that all available evidence says is safe. And it was Justin Trudeau who decided to go on TV and say anti-vaxxers, not all of them, he does a little not all of them caveat, but tend to be misogynists and white supremacists and so on and so forth. And he even goes so far as to say, Aaron O'Toole is not as strong on vaccines. Yves-Francois Blanchet is yeah. not as strong on vaccines. And I think that was really deplorable. And I don't think we've ever, we haven't had enough, at least in, the, I'll say the mainstream press, the liberal press, whatever you want to call it, uh, enough of a conversation about how dangerous those comments were and how bad they were. And I don't think, it was only the benefit of hindsight that I've real, I think I've really appreciated just how terrible they were. Um, I think when you get into 2020, uh, when the Freedom Convoy shows up and Pierre Polyev launches his leadership bid, I think you can absolutely say that Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party uh, weaponized, um, in many cases, misinformation or distrust around the vaccines for their own political ends. Maybe you could even say in response to what Trudeau did. I don't think there's anyone with totally clean hands here in this whole thing. But but Justin Trudeau, as the prime minister, had a moral, moral obligation uh, to not play this game. He probably had a moral obligation not to call an election in the midst of the pandemic and use that pandemic as a political wedge. I don't think we can stress that enough. Um, so absolutely. Um, 
when it comes to their their moral imperative to to highlight the anti-vaxxers, it was very much set in the tone, and I, I genuinely think they believe it, um, that it, it was the prime minister's job to be forceful in recommending people take the vaccine. And, and by that, I mean, you know, really underscoring the possible dangers of not doing it, underscoring the safety of taking it and admonishing anybody who would uh, could contradict that. I think we know emphatically even if their intentions were pure, that doesn't work. People don't like that. That actually pushes people in the opposite direction. You get people uh, to, to who are skeptical uh, to, to do something that they're skeptical of by addressing their concerns directly and talking to them about it, not by going on TV and calling them a bunch of lunatics, right? Um, there's no doubt there's people out there who are spreading wild lies like, you know, the COVID vaccine is full of snake venom or it's rearranging your DNA. Like, these things we know are not true. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you do with those people. But there was a ton of people out there who were uh, ranged from, from skeptical to hostile. Um, maybe some of them could have been convinced. Maybe some of them would never be convinced. Regardless, you do better by having genuine conversations with them and not calling them idiots uh, than you do by going on TV and calling them a bunch of uh, angry women hating nutjobs. And this gets back into what I think is the most crucial point of, of your report, which is the idea of echo chambers and, and how it's increasingly comfortable to be in, in one. And, and I'm fully aware of this. And this is actually, a, a bit, I don't want to say an uncomfortable topic, but it's, it's a challenging one for me because I realize that independent media that takes a, a particular political stand will, will naturally gravitate towards people that like echo chambers. And, and I always try to do my best to push back against that by saying, I don't want you to just listen to me and, and only me. I want you to do what I do and, and get news from a, a variety of places. But we are very siloed and it's actually mm -hmm. fascinating to me. You know, I, I once uh, did a little experiment where I, I logged into a friend's Facebook account who wasn't political. This is back when Facebook had news. And I, I just wanted to see, you know, your homepage, my homepage, just how different is what we're getting and wildly different, just so wildly different. And if you were someone that didn't quite know how these programs worked, you wouldn't realize that you're only getting a narrow subset of, of the world whenever you, you go online. And, and I, I'm curious if you think people are choosing these. You know, people are saying, I am self-selecting out of the world and I want my little slice of it. Do you think people are, are ending up in this and don't even know it? This is a terrible question because I've been writing a my newsletter for for tomorrow for the launch of the report uh, on exactly this topic, and so I have a, you know three thousand words in my head that I'm trying not to just view at you. Um, the short answer is. Yes, people chose it, but they were also pushed into it. The reality is we actually know from a bunch of really good social science, people are not naturally inclined to, to just consume things that they agree with from people they agree with. We're actually very much more complicated creatures. We tend to go out of our way to get information um, that contradicts our worldview mm -hmm. or at the very least um, tends to be a little bit oppositional to it. And this has been the history of people since the dawn of time. I mean, you know, I hosted a podcast about right wing radio um, and found myself not being a hundred percent against all of it, right? Like, you know, I, I, I can't, I have to confess, I, Rush Limbaugh is really fun to listen to. And then through doing this show, I talked to a bunch of people who are generally liberals who, who would say the same thing, would turn on Rush Limbaugh because they wanted to hear the other side, even if they disagreed with it. We are naturally predisposed to being curious, weird creatures who, who want to hear the other side. Now, 
Facebook and, and all, Facebook was the instigator, but not the only culprit for this. Facebook consistently tried to convince us that we didn't want that. Right. Facebook hmm. consistently tried to give us information that it thought we wanted, information that we agreed with, information that people like us liked. And consistently, we actually have a bunch of internal Facebook memos that were leaked last year to Congress um, that that show that people don't like it. People were unhappy with it. The problem is Facebook earned more money and got more engagement by continuing to do it, in some cases by making us angry. It actually convinced publishers and political parties by uh, you know, using Facebook, sorry, using anger as the most powerful metric to, to share information on that news feed by juicing it up in the algorithm. It convinced political parties and news outlets to make their headlines angrier. You can see, I mentioned this study, this stat in my report, but you can see a 300% increase in the number of headlines that use anger and fear and anxiety in their headlines. At the same time, you see a massive decline in headlines um, and news articles that generally employ you know, happiness and joy and positive emotions, right? So Facebook directly contributed to the mainstream press, by the way. This is not even the alternative press. This is the major news outlets. To them becoming angry and more oppositional, right? So that led to a catalyst of a whole bunch of startups replicating that emotion, right? That's where you get a lot of the bright parts. It's where you get uh, the press progresses and the Daily Coast and these other outlets that tend to use this high emotion language. You know, watch Joe Biden destroy Bernie Sanders, watch Donald Trump eviscerate Ronda. You know, this is where you get that language from. And even if we're not naturally predisposed towards that kind of stuff, if you keep pushing it in people's faces, they will consume it, right? Because it sounds exciting. And if you're in this rage arms race to make everything this high emotion competition, people will, will engage with it. And the problem is we've done this now for so long. We have not tried anything different. We've baked in um, this angry, rage-inducing media culture, and now we don't know how to get out of it, right? The old publishers are dying. Um, they're now facing a huge distribution problem because social media is, is, is discouraging them. They, they're having a hard time recruiting uh, subscribers. They're losing their print subscribers, uh, so on and so forth. And C18 is making everything so much worse. Uh, meanwhile, alternative media outlets like yours, like the National Observer, like the Rebel, you name it, um, are speaking to their own crowd, and no one's quite sure how to do that cross-cutting conversation like we used to have. No one's quite sure how to get someone to buy a copy of the New York Times and then go listen to Rush Limbaugh in their car. We are at a real problematic point right now. And it's only going to be through people kind of waking up to this and going, oh, God, you're right. I have to find something to listen to that mm -hmm. isn't what I always listen to. And that's the that's going to be part of the solution. Um, but it's going to be a tough slog for the next little while. And, and and I it is interesting because I like in theory what you're saying that we're not as inherently tribal on these things. I, I'm a bit skeptical. I mean, I remember when you had me on uh, your podcast, uh, you were very kind enough to withstand the deluge of, oh, how are you dignifying this guy? Why are you having him on? And I'm sure all my uh, commenters may return the favor. But I mean, even last week, I had a, a self-professed Marxist on the show named Stuart Parker, and we had a, a nice chat. And he's, you know, all uh, over the leftist causes on everything except one, which is the, the mm -hmm. transgender issue. And, and I even... With that had people that were commenting me like I won't hear anything this Marxist has to say because they're just there is sort of that natural instinct of I just want to hive off 
these perspectives. Now, I, I think that's probably a minority. I think, you know, people uh, seem to be enjoying so far the, the conversation you and I are having, and I, I'm glad we're having it. And, and I, I don't know if that's enough to, to write no. this ship because there is a, a psychological component to this. And, and that's the worst thing is that you're talking about things that have very real effects on people's brains in what they choose to click on and what they choose to engage with. And, and I don't know, and it's bigger than your report here, but I don't know what you need to unwire that. No, I, I don't a hundred percent know either. I mean, I think step one is, is really measuring it and auditing it, which was the point of this report. We really don't get into solutions really. Um, part of the point of this report is to grab it, look at it, recognize it, how it's happening in your life, maybe see some of it in, in some of your own behavior and to start thinking about it and then be receptive to solutions or be thoughtful about them. You know, personally, I have a few ideas, right? Like I, I, I think political uh, party financing is part of the problem. The constant demand that parties raise huge amounts of money is part of what's making us crazy. I heard conservative MPs who were shocked to hear the words come out of their mouth who said, I think it's time to bring back the per vote subsidy, right? You know, we can't keep <laughs> shaking down all of our supporters for money constantly in order to fight elections. Um, ditto. I heard those conservative MPs say, you know, God, it might be time for proportional representation. You know, first past the post is, 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 you know, Justin Trudeau has mastered first past the post. He has perfected the way in which to squeeze the NDP stoke up fears about the conservatives and kind of balance in the middle, right? Like he's really good at it. Proportional representation, um, you know, alleviating some of that pressure on the conservatives from the right by letting Maxime Bernier win like seven seats or whatever, um, you know, letting the NDP kind of a little more breathing room on the left. All of that might actually uh, help reinvigorate our democracy to some degree, but those aren't solutions either. I mean, those won't fix polarization overnight. It's also going to require a rebuilding of state capacity, which is bigger than any of us can kind of do individually. We need to be able to get, um, you know, the homelessness problem under control. We need to be able to build housing again. We need to be able to to build new transit to get stuff done again. And that is a much deeper problem than than kind of any one policy can solve. And I think once you see things kind of rebounding properly, uh, people will get less anxious and, and more inclined to having kind of real conversations mm -hmm. with people. So you're totally right. I mean, this is a much, much bigger problem. Problem. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it's also going to be a future of the Internet thing, right? Like where we're at right now, we don't have a platform for conversations anymore. Um, Twitter has has not that it was great before. I, frankly, I think it's even worse now. And people decamping to their various kind of preferred social media platforms is not really enabling us a space to sit in the middle and, and talk anymore. So. I don't know where that is. We're going to have to figure it out uh, because you know, unless we can actually talk to each other again, get used to hearing people you disagree with kind of uh, actually explain themselves um, in real terms. Um, I, I think it's going to be really important and, and really necessary going forward. Yeah. And just on that, I mean, your report identifies how deplatforming, which has often, in my experience, been viewed as a predominantly left-wing phenomenon that's used against right-wingers, although I know that I'm simplifying it, but how deplatforming actually drives this uh, further and, and actually forces people into their own little echo chambers. And I was actually, just on a related note, kind of encouraged that some of the people you spoke to had a, a very... I would say enlightened view of cancel culture that isn't what I expected from the under 35s. They were almost universally, it seemed like from what you included against it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, part of the report, we had a particular focus on the experiences of youth. We did some polling, uh, particularly in uh, amongst youth who don't normally respond to polling. Um, but we also have these kind of long form roundtables where the kind of focus groups where we talk to under 35 year olds about their experiences with polarization and, and politics more generally. And it we actually had no questions in there about cancel culture or deplatforming or anything because we really, really didn't. We wanted to let the conversation drive itself, but also it really wasn't part of the study. It was something all of them volunteered. We heard it again and wow. again and again. Um, and it was really interesting because, you know, I, I might disappoint some of your listeners. It's not like there was some huge upswell of conservative sentiment amongst these youth. A lot of them are progressives, right? A lot of them are, you know, talking about homelessness is one of the biggest problems in this country, the desperate need for affordable housing, um, you, you know, racial justice as, as being one of the top priorities, indigenous reconciliation, all these things. But what they told us was that the constant demands from their, their peer groups around kind of being ideologically perfect, around denouncing the right people, around never kind of questioning orthodoxy, um, was making them anxious and slightly crazy, right? Like you know, there was a feeling like um, cancel culture and deplatforming as a tactic had run contrary to the principles on which it was founded, right? The the hope of cancel culture and deplatforming was it was supposed to respond to inadequacies of the inadequacies of the state and, and the media to deal with you know sexual predators and abusers and, and and all this, you know, the Harvey Weinstein's of the world or the Jeffrey Epstein's or whatever. But what they found was that it was increasingly targeting either um, you know middling uh, celebrities or, or public figures or whoever who for whom the punishment was much worse than the crime or in even worse cases people in their community right we always talk about cancel culture as being this kind of big national thing but where it actually happens more often than not is in small communities one person says something slightly untoward makes a kind of an ignorant comment or gets accused of something um, and it gets it gets it spirals out of control and suddenly their lives are ruined and not only that everybody else in the community is sort of pressured upon to, to to stand up and denounce that figure or else be kind of labeled uh, a traitor to the revolution to some degree, right? So a lot of these people we spoke to basically said, I agree with the principles underpinning it. I do want to call out, you know, guys who are sexually harassing people on the job or whatever, but I feel like we've wasted a lot of time and energy destroying people who didn't necessarily need to be destroyed and not, most importantly, giving them a path to sort of rehabilitation and for reform and apology and penance and reconciliation. And I think that was really interesting. And I, I you know, and I, I kind of extend this out in another part of the report to talk about deplatforming more broadly. Um, you know, when you take a class of people who agree with something that might be wrong or, you know, might be based on misinformation or might just be sort of contrary to kind of where, where mm -hmm. the conversation is, when you kick them off a platform, they're going to go somewhere else and they're going to keep having that conversation. And in some cases, that conversation might, might get much more intense. It might be much more driven by animosity and might be angrier uh, and fundamentally it makes some of these topics taboo if they're really wrong well let's let's hash it out it's not to say that we have to you know put every january 6 participant on the debate stage so they can air their views but it does sort of mean that you kind of have to let them talk there's there's no benefit we get uh, really from from sort of kicking people out of the public square uh, and hoping they just kind of shut up about it it just doesn't work that way
Well, look, it, it's a, a fascinating report. And I, I think that, you know, why can't we all get along might be a bit too ambitious and trite, <laughs> but why can't we all have it out and talk about it as adults, I think should certainly be the goal here. The report, uh, which has been uh, commissioned for by the Public Policy Forum, comes out tomorrow. You can read it. Uh, it's called Far and Widening the Rise of Polarization in Canada, written by freelance journalist Justin Ling. Justin, this was an absolute delight. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you. That'll do it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Let me know what you think in the comments here. Do you think polarization has gotten worse? Do you think there is hope on the horizon? And Are you feeling more or less encouraged after that conversation? I've always said, if people can get off Twitter, it will do tremendous things for uh, their well-being and also for society itself. And not just abandon Twitter, but I mean keep conversations in real life larger than what exists on Twitter. I, I think that's key as well. And I, I've had so many times where I've been like writing something out and I'm like, you know, I know that there's no way I can condense this issue into, I think now you get like unlimited characters, but at the time, 140, 280 characters. And I like, people are going to take it out of context and, and you sort of just back off because you know that it's not a place for nuance. Now I love doing a show because on a show I've got conceivably unlimited time to make my point. And I don't actually often see or ever really clips of, of what I've said taken out of context because I always make a point of describing what I think and why I think it. And, and if people want to vilify me for my beliefs, they can. Uh, but uh, I think it is a lot harder to do that face to face. So we should talk about those with whom we disagree. I know it's easier said than done, but it's important. And I was glad to have Justin Ling on to talk about polarization through his eyes. So that does it for us for today. As I said, we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.